Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th. And it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose. And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. Hey, everybody. The Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes, more than 600 and counting, are available for free. You can listen online via iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. It's all free. You can hear my conversations with writers like George Saunders, Cheryl Strayed, Brett Easton Ellis, Atessa Moshfeg, Susan Orlean, Amy Bender, Hilton Owls, Roxanne Gay. The list goes on. Everything's free. It's listener-supported. If you like the program and you want to throw a few bucks in the hat, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Sometimes I talk to myself in public. I try to pay attention to my footsteps, but it's interrupted by Hello. Hello, everybody. How's it going? Welcome to the Other People podcast. I'm Brad Listy, and I'm here in Los Angeles. I have Elizabeth Cantwell on the program today. She is a poet, and I have heard from many of you in recent weeks asking me to talk to more poets. People want poets, which uh, is interesting because I like talking to poets, too. They're among my favorite guests. Just my, they're, they're among my favorite people. I like poets. So uh, I'm pleased to have Elizabeth Cantwell on the program. She has authored three collections of poetry. One is called Premonitions. Another is called Nights I Let the Tiger Get You. And most recently, an award-winning collection called All the Emergency Type Structures, which is available from Inlandia Institute. So you're going to hear from Elizabeth Cantwell in just a minute. I do have some mail from listeners that I would like to get to first. A listener named Maria writes, Hey Brad, I've been wanting to write for a long time. Usually I get a burst of inspiration to write to you when I'm listening to the show in the car on the way home or to work. And then later I completely forget what I wanted to write to you about. What you said about trauma in episode 602 really resonated with me. I'm currently working on a novel about addiction 
and I had never thought of how I'm using my novel to deal with my own trauma surrounding addiction. My character is very different than I am, and although I myself am not an addict, I've been around it at a low level most of my life. I've also spent a lot of time thinking about how easy it would be to just become an addict of something, anything. I don't mean that in a way to belittle anyone else's experiences, but I see a world where if I hadn't gone to college and didn't have a 9-to-5 job and other stability in my life, I could have fallen into some bad things. Anyway, I want to thank you for that conversation because it made me think about why I'm writing what I'm writing. Sign Maria. Yeah, you know, maybe this is overly simplistic, but I kind of feel like, you know, most of us are writing about trauma in one way or another, regardless of whatever form our writing takes. We're working through stuff, right? You stick around on this planet long enough, you're going to get traumatized by something. Whether you know it or not. And I know that it can be a little bit trite to talk about uh, the you know the therapeutic value of writing and the catharsis one experiences in writing, but you know in my experience, it's been the case. You put it down on paper, you think deeply about it. It makes sense to me that you would you know arrive at some kind of transcendence or acceptance or understanding or all of the above, right? simply because the act is uh, is so involved. It's such a rigorous process of examination, of self-examination, and uh, of inwardness. A listener named Sam writes, I was wondering, have you ever thought, or he says, hi Brad, I was wondering, have you ever thought about creating a message board, either on otherpeople.com or The Nervous Breakdown? As someone who has grown up on message boards and still peruses them regularly today, I think it would be a pretty cool thing for you to create. I know there's Twitter and everyone can interact on there, but there's something quaint about message boards. Plus, Twitter feeds are seen for a day or two and then mostly disappear. Message board threads are always there to be read, and there most likely won't be such a high post count that the threads disappear very quickly. It will be... A slow burn at first, I'm sure, but over time it will build up. That's the nature of message boards in their early stages. It's nice to have a small, like-minded community that can, di- that can discuss literary topics. Or other topics. Anyway, I hope you get this. Hit me back just to chat. Truly yours, your biggest fan. This is Sam. Sam is a super fan of the show. He's, he's written to me a bunch of times. He or she. I think it's a he. And uh, thanks to Maria as well. You know, I think a message board isn't a terrible idea. I think part of it is just, I don't know how to do that. Like, I got to get this, you know, get my web guy to figure it out. It's just time. It's just an issue of time and money. If it can be done cheaply and it's easy to use and it doesn't look terrible, I'm not opposed. So if you're out there and you're listening and you like this idea, if you think like a, you know, a message board sounds like a useful tool or, you, you know, something you would want, write to me or tweet at me at other PPL. And uh, if you want to write to me and uh, share thoughts, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. Hey, folks, if you are a writer, if you're somebody who's struggling to write, if you're trying to write a book but failing, if you're failing to write a book but wishing you could, if you've written a book but you're not sure if it's any good and you need to make it better, all of the above, you know what I'm talking about? 
I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. This is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond. Steve has been a guest many times on this show. I actually spoke with him on this very podcast about this very book not too long ago. You should listen to it. Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow is based on three decades of Steve's career, writing, failing, and trying again. Richard Russo calls it one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. This is a book that debunks the well-meaning but misguided myths that can hold us back from writing our deepest and most truthful work. It employs the same radical empathy that Steve displayed as co-host with Cheryl Strayed on the Dear Sugars podcast, and it will help you generate new work. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond. Available from Zando. So my guest today is Elizabeth Cantwell. Her poetry collection, All the Emergency Type Structures, is now available from Inlandia Institute. It was great to meet her, great to have her over here, and uh, to get to know another poet. You ready for this? You want to hear from Elizabeth Cantwell? Here she is, folks. This is Elizabeth, and her poetry collection, one more time, is called All the Emergency Type Structures. It's like, I think there's the phrase, it's like the jewel of the Inland Empire, because there's a lot of really terrible places that you don't want to be in the Inland Empire, and then Claremont's like the college town, like oh, okay. the mom and pop stores. The and jewel of the Inland Empire. The village, <laughs> yep. <laughs> How long have you been there? Uh, I lived, well, I've lived in LA for a long time, and then I moved out to Claremont in 2015. Like what, just to get like saner, like like to raise kids? I work of? out there, so I was actually commuting from Echo Park to... Claremont, um, which was a lot. (laughs) Yeah, It was against traffic, so it was better than if you were going with traffic. But even so, if there was an accident, it was just a mess. And uh, do you like it? I love it out there. You do? Yeah. Didn't David Foster Wallace live out there? Yes. He did. Is that, Um, what what college was he at again? I think he was at Pomona. That's right. Yeah. And you're at Claremont. Well, I I teach a high school out there actually. Oh, right. Um, So I'm like slightly disconnected from the academia of it all. But no, I surprisingly, I was worried that I would hate it because I loved LA and I like being near a city. Um, I dislike the idea of suburbia. It was a little scary to me, but... I've really grown to love how close we are to the mountains. Um, there's so much to do outside. We're just outside a lot. It's easy. You can drive. You can park at Trader Joe's. Okay, I'm moving. Yeah, um, you, you sold great. me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, and, and you're from. You said you're originally from the D.C. area. Yeah, I grew up in Northern Virginia. Um, so you know, D.C. suburbs. Um, Parents in the government? No, no, just there. Just there. <laughs> I don't really know. Why? I think actually my parents moved there for the school system, I believe, because they were living in Virginia, but Northern Virginia has a really good public school system. Um, so we were there for the schools, I'm pretty sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah I've heard that. And then um, like, what do they do? Are you, are you, like, are you from riderly stock? No. <laughs> my dad was a lawyer, um, but he's also a church organist. So he still does that. He retired from law, but he still plays the organ. So artsy, artsy music stuff was definitely around. I feel like lawyers often harbor some sort of artistic 
like whim or something. Yeah. Well, I feel like to keep you sane, right? He was a very bitter lawyer, but a much happier <laughs> church worker. Well, yeah, what is it about that? Because I, I know nothing about being a lawyer, but it seems like people who are lawyers are often like, this is the worst or they're not happy. Yeah. I have no recollections of my dad sharing happy memories of his job <laughs> with us over dinner. He was just never, never enjoyed it. Um, and then my mom was a dancer, but also a preschool teacher. So I guess the arts were definitely there, but it was like a side gig that you did on the side. Which what about, what, what kind of dancing are we talking about? Modern dance. What does yeah. that mean? Like no ballet shoes, Martha Graham, contorting your body, okay. um, pain, <laughs> so <laughs> scarves. Nothing I would be interested in or good at. <laughs> right, exactly. Did you have to dance as a kid and stuff? I did dance, yeah. I danced for, I danced all the way through up until like my last year of high school when I was realizing that I wasn't ever good enough to be a, an actual dancer. Um, and I had other things that I wanted to spend my time doing, but it was hard. Yeah. It's hard. Dancing is hard on your body. Terrible on your body. Yeah. yeah. Like ballerina, like they're tough. Oh yeah. I just watched that, uh, Patrick Swayze documentary, uh, called I am Patrick Swayze. Okay. <laughs> Have you seen it? No, I haven't. Well, you know, I'm a huge fan of, I think Patrick Swayze is a great actor or something about like, I've said this a million times, but I think something about him in his performances, like just brings me joy. I don't know if he's like Lawrence Olivier, but like something <laughs> about his level of commitment, uh, just pleases me. It's kind of like, like Tom Cruise, like similar. I love watching Tom Cruise because he's just 150% Tom in. Cruise. Yeah. 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 And it's like, there's something like, I mean, it's a little funny. Like I'm sort of laughing as I watch, but it also delights me. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I also think that it, um, I like, I, I think a lot about the appeal. I think that maybe part of the appeal for me is that I'm not capable of that level of commitment in anything like at all. Like, you know, like to be all in like that, with yeah. that like, uh, you know, maximal intensity is just not part of my makeup. But, uh, anyway, Patrick Swayze's mother was a dance teacher, Oh, which I did not like fully. I think I might've heard it, but I had forgotten. And so he grew up like dancing. He was a really good, I want to say he could have been like a world-class uh, is it a male ballerina? What do you call them? Ballerinas? I guess just, yeah, a dancer. Ballerina? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if there's a male term for that. Yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> uh, but I think he blew his knee out, uh, if I'm recalling correctly, in a football game. Kind of oh, wow. Yeah, so he was always, but he was always dealing with physical pain and yeah. really sort of banged himself up dancing. Yeah, it's a really unhealthy lifestyle. For was, sure. your, was your mother uh, injured? And She. Uh, since she never did it sort of, she wasn't a full-time dancer. She always danced and she always was dancing with various companies here and there and performing. But I think she managed to hold back from the type of physical pain that you get when you're just a professional dancer all in all the time. Um, but definitely like, you know, I've broken most of my toes at some point or another, <sighs> like you just have, and you do have that idea of like push through the pain, push through the um, even to the point of obviously food, right? Like don't eat. <laughs> you can't eat when you're a dancer. Yeah. You just don't eat. So that was a pretty unhealthy, um, part of my life for a while. Just that idea of having to be a certain way or meet a certain perfection. Yeah. There's like this place in LA now it's called ballet bodies. Have you heard of this? No. It's like a new workout, but like you do ballet workout. Okay. Kind of like bar classes. Yeah. And I'm yeah. like, I'm, I'm fat. I'm like, should I do this? Do Probably I, not. I want to look like Barishnikov. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who doesn't want to look like Barishnikov? Right. Um, so anyway, I guess uh, you maybe picked up some of that artistic stuff from your parents, and 
Um, did it filter into your life as a child? Like, were you exhibiting these tendencies from super young age? I think I was writing from a young age. Like I definitely have memories of writing poems and writing things and, um, telling stories and writing stories. Um, and I do remember, I think everybody has like a, a story of a teacher that sort of diagnosed them. Like you're a writer. I remember my sixth grade teacher, we had like a poetry project and I turned in a bunch of poems and I remember him sort of talking to me individually and saying, Hey, these are actually good. (laughs) Like these are better than like a sixth grade poem. Um, so that was always kind of there. Um, writing was something I did, I don't know, just to relieve stress or just to express myself in a different way. Like my toes are broken (laughs) and write a poem about it. Well, you know, you have the terrible poems that everybody writes when they're a kid that's like my tears are black diamonds <laughs> the, the sad honey at the windows drips like blood like i definitely wrote those are you, you you're quoting yourself i'm sure yeah, yeah. <laughs> i like how you use the word diagnose to talk about somebody telling you you're a writer it's like it's like an illness it is a disease yeah <laughs> you might want to sit down um like the doctor giving you the bad news you know? right right uh so did you like can you dance like i not to stay too long on dancing but this is something that i'm that's so not in my wheelhouse that I'm fascinated by it as somebody who has a mother who's like a modern dancer and has some of that in the gene pool. Like, does that translate to like when you go to the club and you dance or is it totally different? No, it's totally different. Yeah. I I think I'm a pretty bad dancer at a club. I don't think I would be enjoyable to watch. (laughs) Yeah. Our our ballerinas, they, they, that doesn't necessarily mean they can dance like, you know, well, especially when you're thinking about ballet as being something that's all about restriction and, um, precision and control. And then of course, if you're just going out to dance and have fun, it should be the opposite, right? It should be loose. It should be free. It should be without restrictions. Um, and so that's kind of a, your dance training doesn't necessarily help you feel free at the club, especially if you're talking about, I think ballet, right? I think there's other kinds of, of dance that, would actually encourage you to be more open. I am so like that. I marvel at people who have that like total lack of inhibition yeah, and just like bodily freedom or whatever it is. Like I just don't have it. I I cannot access it at all. No, it's terrifying a little bit to watch. Yeah. (laughs) But I'm also like, like maybe it is just me, but I'm like, what's wrong with me? Like I'm so inhibited. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So you're writing poetry as a kid. Um, you seem well adjusted. You seem like you came from a decent family. Your parents cared about where you went to school. That's always a good sign. Yeah. I feel like I'm like a functioning, um, anxiety person. You know what I mean? Where like a functioning alcoholic, but like I, I function well and I appear well adjusted. And then inside there's like the little black hole of anxiety. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think, man, I was just talking to my wife, uh, the other day, like there's a lot of anxiety in my family that doesn't get talked about a lot. And then I think, but then I think when I look around, I think everybody's anxious or most everybody, especially in the contemporary world. Yeah. Who's not anxious. Like, and if you're not like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah. You're not paying attention. Yeah. You know, with, uh, and your, you know, your collection deals with a lot of this stuff, but it's like with climate change as an example, like this looming reality of, uh, disaster that is a hundred percent real. Like, how do you carry that around and be nonchalant and like footloose? You know, it's like, it's a, it's a lot for anybody to bear. And then there's just, 
you know, the basic anxieties that go along with, for example, being a parent. Yeah. You know? So I, I feel like, I guess in certain people it's ratcheted up to a level that becomes more unmanageable and you might need like meds or something. Um, like, do you have to take anything or I don't, I, I've thought at times that I probably should, <laughs> but I'm in therapy. I've had a therapist forever and that helps a lot for me. I like to talk through my problems. Um, but yeah, I mean, I see it. I teach, I teach high school and I see, you know, teenagers today who are just absolutely paralyzed by the uncertainness of the future in a way that I feel like we haven't seen since maybe the cold war era where there was this sort of real, very real threat of nuclear annihilation. But I mean, you have these very, very intelligent teenagers who are reading the news and who are reading, you know, science and what's happening. And they're aware that things are disappearing. Um, and it's paralyzing for some people. How do we deal with that? I mean, it's like, my daughter, my wife was saying to me the other day, she's like, my daughter, who's nine now, they were walking, you know, over to the, the like a cafe or, the, you know, the drugstore nearby. And my daughter kept looking behind her. And my wife was like, what are you doing? And she's like, I always like to look behind me just to make sure nobody has a gun. God. And I'm just like, fuck, man. But I there's know. no protecting them. Like, they're going to find out this stuff. I mean, like, she's been fairly protected, but you know, like she's got an iPad. She has friends at the playground. Everybody's talking like she's going to find stuff out. And then it's like, well, how do we give her some tools to deal? Cause she's definitely an anxious kid. Yeah. And then, uh, like we traveled over the summer and we went to the Midwest to visit some family and it was a much like more chill environment than the city. And she definitely felt more relaxed. And then it's like, Oh God, like maybe living in this city is like making her more anxious than she needs to be because she's seeing so much like human suffering. There's homeless people and tents and camps and, um, you know, just the, the stuff you see when you live in a big city. And then on the other hand, I'm like, well, it's good that she's not insulated from it. She's in contact with the world and it's going to make her more empathetic. Like I go back and forth. Yeah. I was about to say, I feel like empathy. I feel like people who have a lot of empathy today are really... I think there's a term for it, like empathy burnout or empathy uh, overload. That's not the right term. There's definitely, I've read about it, people who are struggling because they have empathy to sort of function in today's society where you feel like, I, how can I have empathy for everything I'm reading about, for the birds that are dying at an unexpected rate, for the people who have been victimized in mass shootings, for the kids who are being separated from their parents at the border? Like, how can I possibly, at a certain point, you almost have to compartmentalize just to keep going. Um, I find that for me, I kind of waffle between this state of like, oh my God, I'm terrified. Everything's so scary. And then like, whatever, I'll just buy some stuff from Amazon and drink a smoothie and it'll be fine. Um, and I think that's kind of where I'm navigating a lot of the poems in the book are sort of that fear of, um, am I, am I being taken in by the suburban experiment or by the capitalist promise, um, as a way to just assuage my fears about the world? Well, I mean, this is the thing, like you think about something like climate change and, you know, every once in a while I'll start to pat myself on the back and it's like, well, I, I gave up my car, at least for, for now, I'm trying to ride a bike, trying to ride Ubers and public transportation and just drive less generally. 
I don't eat meat most of, you know, I, occasionally there'll be like an egg or something in a cookie, you know, right. or like I'll, I'm not a hundred percent perfect, but that's a good thing to do from a consumption standpoint. But even so I'm still a contributor. Like we don't use cloth diapers, right? Like that and putting uh, how many, God knows how many diapers into a landfill is bad. Um, no matter what, we're all guilty and, uh, you know, we're leaving, I mean, God knows what we're going to leave to our kids. It's pretty scary. I know. And I don't know how you can avoid being guilty. Like, how do you participate in the world at all? Like you'd almost have to remove yourself entirely and like live off the grid or something, but yeah, like that's not the answer. Yeah. I, I always have this dialogue with myself of like, should I get rid of my phone? Should I like, what can I do? And of course you do, you do the things you can do, right? We put solar panels on our house. I'm mostly vegetarian except for when I can't be because my kids refuse to be vegetarian all the time and I'm not going to cook three different dinners because right. I'm not crazy. <laughs> um, you know, I try to be thoughtful about when I'm having something shipped to me online. Like, do I need that thing to be shipped? Can I go to a store and get that? But yeah, you can't, like you said, you can't live a hundred percent perfectly if you're living as a part of the way the society is set up. I mean, we could all go move to cabins in the woods. That sounds pretty great, but I don't know if it's realistic. No, no. And what about these solar panels? I'm curious about this. You did that and like, yeah. what, they just come in and yeah, uh, I think the way we have it set up is that we're not actually, so we're gathering energy and then we're selling it back to the power company. So it goes to the power company. It doesn't go directly to our house. So if there were a power outage, our lights would still go out, even if we had the energy. But I think because we're selling it back to the power company, that lessens the amount of fossil fuels the power company has to use. Okay. If that makes sense. Are they like, like are the panels like really visible and on the roof? Is it like... They're on the roof on the side and on the back. I think they look fine. What about this? Uh, isn't Elon Musk making these panels that look oh, like God. roof tiles? <laughs> I'm sure he is. <laughs> I'm sure he is. I would not be surprised. Um, yeah. You know, I feel like those are like, that's a good thing to do. I need to, I need to look into that, especially in Southern California where it's like sunny every day. Yeah. Like why we've are we why generated are we... a ton of energy on them? When we put them in, I was worried about it, but we've covered, you know, all the energy we're, we're using. What does it cost? May I ask? You know, I don't know the, I don't know the details of the financing because we have like a pretty traditional setup where my husband does a lot of the finance stuff and I kind of like pretend that I know what's going on and <laughs> ask enough questions to feel I've participated. Yeah. You got to divide um, and conquer. Yeah. But it was, it's not, I think you do pay a little more in the beginning than you would for just straight electricity. But the idea is in the long term, you're making money. Got um, it. And so far, yeah, we, we track our energy usage because we have like an app that shows how much um, the panels are generating and we're making a lot of energy. So when it comes to like, just to circle back to uh, anxiety, um, because I'm sure it feeds your poetry and feeds like maybe your tendency to be a poet and to want to like express yourself in that way and maybe work through things in, in your art. Um, is this something that you feel like this is just like a genetic predisposition coupled with you know, these kinds of circumstantial factors and like all the, you know, just being exposed to the world and all the problems that we're talking about. Um, is that where you think it comes from? Like, is there like a family tendency or did something happen to you that you think maybe made, made you like extra anxious when you were yeah. a kid or something? No, I, I think it's probably genetic. Um, I don't have 
you know, any particular childhood trauma that I could trace that to, which also then makes you feel kind of bad sometimes, right? Because you're like, well, I was fine. I grew up safely. I had enough money to have clothes. Why do I feel stressed out about being alive? Um, So I think there's definitely genetics involved. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and again, I also think like, it seems to be like the, the most normal thing ever. Yeah. I think what's abnormal would be to not feel anxious. Yes. But there is a point at which it becomes unmanageable. Has it ever gotten to the point where you're like paralyzed or you have panic attacks? Uh, well, I feel like my mental health was the worst after I had my first child. And I'm sure there was some postpartum depression going on there too. That was not diagnosed or not regulated. Well, um, I was not prepared for the way having a child plays with your hormones. Uh Um, I mean, everyone talks about pregnancy playing with your hormones, but there's not as much, I, I think there's not as much awareness that once you have the baby, your hormones are doing insane things. Right. And my first son was extraordinarily difficult. Um, what, like colicky or colicky reflux? Um, like, a there's this term like high needs baby, like just wouldn't, couldn't be without me. Wouldn't have another caregiver. Um, was very stressful yeah. on me, on him, on my marriage. And I had to stop breastfeeding him really early on because of the formula was better for his reflux. But because of that, my hormones did this crazy thing that I had no idea would happen where I guess if you stop breastfeeding really early after you've had a child, your body thinks, oh, well, the baby is not there anymore, right? Like you've lost your baby. And so you go into this kind of despair cycle hormonally. Oh God. Um, that was really, I didn't know how to handle it. Well, yeah, my wife, uh, with both of our kids had like, po- like struggled with postpartum, like the first year with both of our kids, when the sun went down, she would get like weepy. Yeah. Like dark and light affected her. Yeah. And she had like a lot of ang- you know, anxiety and I had to do all the night duty. Um, just to like get her, like it took a long time. It wasn't yeah. like just like a month, you know, like right, it was a right. while with both, but eventually you emerge, but it's a big, huge biological event to have a child. It is. And I do think parenthood increased my anxiety about the world too. Sure. Cause you see things in a different way and you realize, okay, now I have these beings that I'm responsible for keeping safe, except nobody can keep somebody else safe a hundred percent of the time. And you know, how can I change the future for them? How can I make things okay for them? You have to kind of have this process where you realize I can't, you have to kind of surrender, you know, the illusion that you could, you could ensure your kid's future happiness. Um, yeah. You know, like what I tell myself and it seems like the most unwise thing to pursue or to tell myself. And yet I don't see any other way is that I'm like, I just got to make a huge pile of money to like protect them. <laughs> yeah. Like here, yeah. Like just in case like there, you know, you need to buy some high ground Yeah. or like shelter on a rainy day or whatever it is, because like, that's not the way it should be, but that is the way it seems to be. Like, it seems like the reality is that like, if you're, you know, it's like a have and have not world and it's yeah. brutal and I hope it changes. But as a parent, you're just like, Oh shit. Like, here, like take this. That's what I hope to be be able to say, like just as insurance, but maybe that's a, like a normal parent thing that's been going on forever, but it seems like the stakes are higher. Yeah. I feel like there was some, I read something about how a lot of dads, um, buy guns 
after their kids are born because they're like, oh, I have a child. Now I need a gun, right? I need to protect my kid. Like there, I think there is a statistic on new fathers buying guns at a higher rate. And I feel like the contemporary equivalent of that is like, I'm going to buy you a piece of land somewhere Somewhere like <laughs> that's going to be safe after the climate changes and that has access to water so that you can be one of the privileged people that's not going to be involved in the inevitable like climate change civil wars that break out over the people who have resources and the people who don't. Right. And it's also like there, I was just reading this article about, you know, how certain property is going to become uninsurable. Right. You know, coastal property. Yeah. People are going to be owning these expensive coastal homes and suddenly the insurance companies are going to say, yeah, by the way, we're not insuring those anymore. Yes. And then they're going to say, well, how do we get out from under this? And no one's going to buy them. Yeah. And then the water's going to come in and then, you know, mass population migration and it's going to be a huge fucking mess. And I like know. you say, you're going to have like, it's going to be like, do you have resources? I hate to say it. Yeah. I, I hope it's like, I hope we come as human beings to some sort of sane um, you know, approach where we, we pool resources more, Yes, you know, instead of hoarding them. But it seems like in the world we live in the, the reflex more often than not, and or too often is to sort of like hoard and mm -hmm. retract and get self-protective. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't think that's going to be like, uh, the path to any kind of harmony. Yeah. You know, that's like fear-based. Yeah. And we're replaying the dynamics of white privilege, right? Because, because of institutional racism, more often than not, the people who have the resources are people who have always been in power, who have always had the resources, who are usually white people. Um, and so, you know, you see this kind of shake out where I even feel it, you know, the instinct, like you said, the instinct to be like, well, maybe I can save my kids by putting them in this like ivory tower and giving them money and giving them land and making them safe instead of saying, how can we, how can we work together on this? How can we, how can we be a society that becomes a community around this issue? Yeah. It's like, I mean, I guess I got kind of want to have it both ways. It's like, I'm going to play the game as it seems to exist now, feeling like I have little choice. Like I've got to go try to earn and I got to earn anyway. I got to put food on the table and put my kids through college, but also hopefully sock away for them so that they, We'll have a shelter against a rainy day, but at the same time, try to advocate and work for political solutions in particular that do what you're talking about. Right. Like, can you, can you have, you know, <laughs> maybe try to play it both ways. Yeah. Like, like do it on the, like do it, like do, uh, take like path a, but then try to undermine path a with path B. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like, no, so, I see what you're saying. Like try to play the game and, and undermine and the, fight game. the game. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> play the game and fight the game. Just because, like, you know, you're not going to make them happy. You can't buy anybody's happiness. Yeah. But at least, like, you know, hopefully they can eat if the shit really hits the fan. Yeah. God, it's so bleak to have to think like that. It's really hard to fight a system from inside. It is. It's really, I mean, like, I think about this. Um, this is, like, you know, us a small stint of my life, but I had an internship at the CIA when I was in college during the Iraq war. As one does as a child sure. in Alexandria, Virginia. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I, and I worked on the Iraq desk in like 2003, 2004. Um, and I really had a lot of idealism at that point in my life. Like maybe people doing good work can change things 
from inside, right? Um, and I really believed that for a while. And they, you know, they liked my work there. They offered me a full-time job. I got all geared up, like I'm going to work in the CIA. In high school? No, this was in college. Oh, in college. This was in college, yeah. Um, and so I was really, you know, I signed all the papers. Um, I was ready to go. And then I just had this massive internal crisis of like, I can't do this. Who am I kidding? Um, the system is the system. It's not going to change. And I saw, you know, when I was interning there, I saw people who were doing wonderful work, who had wonderful hearts, who were working hard for something they believed in, and then whose work was just being taken up the chain to people who were going to do whatever they wanted to do with it. Um, and it didn't matter what the intention was behind the work, right? You can't control what somebody in power is going to do with with your intelligence in that case or with your work in any case. So yeah, I had like a giant, a giant internal crisis and backed out and became a high school English teacher instead. And a poet. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. I don't think I've ever had anybody in here who almost worked for the CIA. Yeah. They even gave me a number that for a long time I kept in a shoebox where they were like, if you change your mind, like call this number. And I had it for I think at least a decade until we were moving and I found it. And my husband was like, do you need this number? <laughs> Can you throw this number away? <laughs> you feel good. You feel good about the decision all these years later. I mean, sometimes I still wish I had that number, but yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. I was thinking like, just because of uh, like all the Russia stuff and this feeling that our sovereignty has been violated. Like I definitely feel that way. Yeah. There's a part of me that's like, wow, maybe like, like there, there, there's a, a, a twinge of a call to service in me mm -hmm. like fuck this i don't like yeah. that feeling of like a a mob ruled foreign power yeah infiltrating our country's power structure that's messed up and you know i don't like putin <laughs> he's a bad man i feel like objectively clear about that um but uh, you know I, I don't think i could make the leap yeah uh, i have too many too many mixed feelings you know and like you said earlier I don't think you can change a system from the inside. I mean, maybe that's pessimistic of me. Maybe you can. And I think it's amazing to see all these people who are running for office right now, you know, so many more people than before from different walks of life, different careers saying, you know what, fuck it. I'm going to go run for office. I'm going to do this. That's super inspiring. Maybe I'm just too pessimistic of a person to, to take that leap myself. I think we need, I, I, you know, recently have been thinking a lot, like we need better people to run for office yeah, like across the board, like the quality of people yeah. who are in Congress right now is all too often abysmal. Like we have some really stupid, shitty human beings in Congress. It's true. Like profoundly, like thunderously stupid and greedy and, um, venal. Is that the right word? Yeah. You know? And it's like, wow, like we need to have the kinds of people, like what's the old joke? Like anybody who thinks they should be president or thinks they want to run for president should be disqualified yeah. from running for president. But you sort of need people who would like had never considered politics as an option to throw their hat in the ring. Like that's precisely, I think the kind of person we need running for Congress or Senate or whatever is like a high school English teacher or a poet or, uh, you know, whoever it is who, uh, has some real empathy and a desire to, um, like make it better. But I wonder if that would just completely destroy you. Like if you would just internally combust, um, it would almost be like somebody who's super sensitive 
to blood becoming a doctor, you know, or can you, can you overcome, if you have massive empathy, can you actually be successful in the political system? You can't um, be any more unsuccessful in my, I mean, you can't be any worse than what we've got. No, that's, that's fair. Like we need to inject some humanity into the system and we need to get these really bad actors out. Yeah. Like, you know, I don't know what to do about the Republican party just because I feel like it's so corrupted. I don't presume your politics, but like. <laughs> I feel like it's a big mess right now. It is. And I don't know how you fix it. Like, I'm willing to say, like, hey, listen, if there's a left, there has to be a right. The left and the right are made of one another. Like, I'm down with that whole philosophy or, like, deep reality or whatever. Like, you can't just have a left. Otherwise, there would be uh, there'd be no left. There would just be this. You know what I'm saying? Yes, I do. Like, you, to have darkness, you need light. To yeah, have left, relativity, you need light. yes. Yeah. Um, but I do think we need to move the middle. I think the that's really the fight is like where is the middle mm-hmm. in the spectrum? I would posit that it needs to move to the left a little bit. I think we've gotten tipped, um, but I think like the right of our political spectrum has like lost its way so severely. Well, I also think we're dealing with a situation where we used to argue over ideas. Maybe I, this is me, you know, as a contemporary person imagining what I think the past was like. Um, but I feel like political parties used to argue over ideas more. And now we argue over facts, like what is true and what is not true, which is crazy because you would think a fact would be objectively easy to judge. Um, and actually as, you know, as a teacher, a lot of what we do in the early years with the students at our school is try to help them understand how to evaluate things they're reading and things they're hearing because there's so much out there that is just completely made up. And, you, you know, you're 14, you read an article, you go, sounds good. Okay, I believe that, right? It's written in black and white. It's on a page. Um, so, you know, we actually had this whole lesson last year where we tried to help the kids look at different forms of media and say, what are the clues in here? What's, what are the context clues that this is true or not true, right? What kinds of words are they using? How many statistics do they have? Where did those statistics come from? Can you actually trace what they're talking about? Um, but I don't think we had, I mean, I didn't have to do that when I was growing up. It was kind of like what was in a newspaper or in a news report was true. Um, and I don't think that's the reality anymore. No, I mean, it's like, I think we need to reinstitute uh, at least in most cases, civics in our children's education. So they have some idea of like how the government functions or should function. And then I think like as a new thing, particularly in the absence of any kind of uh, like, um, governmental or legislative addressing of the problem with our media is to teach kids media literacy. Yeah. Because we're entering an environment, especially now where like, you know, now we're starting to see deep fakes yeah. where these like really believable fake videos of like, there was just one yesterday of like Beto O'Rourke, uh, peeing his pants when he was in college. Did you see this? I didn't. He's like I, drunk and it looks, I like believe he, it. looks like he's wet himself. And I'm like, oh my God, like we are in the twilight zone. And so if you don't teach children or anybody, there's the, there are a lot of like morons out there oh, yeah. who believe anything. They watch on uh, Fox News or here on the radio, and it's like, that's it. People are, you know, they're living in their own realities. And as you were just alluding to, like, you know, everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but they're not entitled to their own facts. Right. And we now live in a, in a world where people feel like they're entitled to their own facts, and that's crazy. 
It really is. So what I think to myself is like, how do you, how do you walk the line between freedom of speech and freedom of the press, which I'm close to being an absolutist on and regulating our news media somehow so that it is serving the, you know, serving the public properly. Um, we can't just have an, a, a quote unquote major news organization like Fox, like spewing bullshit and, um, white supremacist, like vitriol and lies. Like that's not news. That's propaganda. Yeah. And we need to be able to parse the two. And there has to be a way for like the country to legislate against this, whether it's like bring back the fairness doctrine or set up some new ground rules because we're living in kind of a wild west environment that is super toxic and is creating crazy and like delude, like badly deluded people in mass in our country. There's like millions of people who are living in a, a warped reality because of this and yeah. it's damaging to the country. Right. Yeah. And to the world. Yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe this is slightly off topic, but I don't think it is, but I think a lot about photography and how photography used to be this sort of inherent truth. Like if you had a photograph of something, it was evidence, right? It was proof that something happened. You had a picture of it. And now with all of the different ways you can doctor a photo, like a photograph means virtually nothing. Right. And this sort of loss of, I mean, you know, you go way, way back. It used to be like the sun, right? Literally going through a little pinhole and projecting an image onto a piece of paper and like the sun can't lie. Um, and now we've removed sort of this, the natural process of photography is so many times removed that it's just manipulation by people. And these images mean so little. Um, and I don't know. I think that I think that is something that I think about a lot as a, as a writer is like, how do you represent, how do you represent a reality? How do you capture an image that is true? Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking now like video is about to become exactly the same way. Yeah. The deep fake stuff is crazy. Yeah. We're going to get to a point. Cause usually it was like, oh, this guy's a wife beater. This guy's a wife beater. And it was like, well, and then you see him like beating his wife on like some sort of like a, uh, you know, hotel security camera and it's mm -hmm. like, oh shit. Right. And then it's like public opinion swings. Right. But I think we are rapidly approaching a moment where people are going to see that video and be like, well, I don't know if it's real. I don't real. believe it. Yeah. I'm already paranoid about the media I'm reading and consuming. I mean, there's so many examples and it's not just the right either. Right. That's it's becoming super widespread that people just throw these things out. And it's kind of hard to tell at first glance is something is this an actual reality? And then of course you have the real stuff that's even worse than you could imagine, right? Like the, the video that just came out of Justin Trudeau and brown face, right? Where you're like, really? I didn't see it. Really? I, I didn't see it. It's, oh, it's bad. Oh, it's not, it's not Why good. Are people so fucking stupid. I don't know. And it's, it's that kind of thing where, yeah, everything feels, everything just feels fucked at a certain level where you're like, I don't even know. The real stuff is terrible. The, the not real stuff is false. Can't I just, you know, hike up a mountain and sit with some lilies. <laughs> yeah. And I think too, like, you know, everybody's such a mess. And I mean this like empathetically, like not to excuse uh, bad behavior or like genuine transgressions, but like, it just feels like in this age that we're living in, like people are being exposed to one another's insides. I think that's kind of a function of social media. Like all of this, like 
subsurface chatter that used to live subsurface has been surfaced. Mm -hmm. And it's giving us a window into each other that uh, is often disturbing. Mm -hmm. And I think it can also build some like either mistrust or like ventilation of anger or, you know, tribalism, you know, like think people like break off into these like clusters. And, um, I guess it's part, like, I think the optimist in me is like, this is part of an evolution. Like, I don't think the answer is to put the genie back in the bottle and have it all live subsurface. I think it's better that we like get real, like, okay, so this is what it looks like on the inside. Yeah. But man, is it an awkward and and often painful process? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot. I teach a I teach a horror course um, at my high school, which I love. Perfect for a person with anxiety. It's great. No, I actually <laughs> think it it helps me um, in a weird in a weird way. But I've been thinking a lot about Freud's concept of the uncanny um, because I'm teaching. You know, he has this like famous essay on the uncanny where he talks about what does uncanny mean and unpacking this idea of something that is both familiar and unfamiliar at the same time. Right, the German word is unheimlich, um, and he goes through all of these sort of linguistic breakdowns of how can how can you have a house that is your house and not your house, right? Um, and there's all these beautiful, amazing images in the essay, and I think a lot about how we're almost living in an uncanny world right now where everything is both familiar and unfamiliar, right? People, you see a person and they're familiar, but then their social media presence makes them also a different person. And there's almost two people, like you have this doubling. Um, and you know, I don't know. I'm thinking a lot about the concept of the uncanny. People have a podcast and you listen to it and then you actually meet the person. Right. Exactly. <laughs> You're much more charming on your podcast when I listen to it. <laughs> Like the, the real thing is always a letdown, you know, but, um, I do find, and I've said this before that usually when I interact with somebody a lot on social media and then I meet them, I'm relieved that I'm rarely, if ever surprised. Yeah. Like it's rarely like, Oh, I, I thought you were one thing. And then it turns out you're the other. Like usually right. people hew pretty closely to their social media presentation, like almost to the point where like, even if they have like an avatar that isn't them you sort of get a sense of them or I'm able to like get a sense of their vibe and then you meet them and you're like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think that's maybe more true for people who are a little older. I think that for a lot of younger people, they have really sort of generated personas of who they would like to be or who they think they would like to be. Um, I do think that when you're talking about, you know, older millennials or people in their forties, there's often more of a congruence there. Yeah. I'm talking about Friendster too. I don't know oh. if, what social media platform you were thinking of. Yeah, MySpace. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. All my MySpace friends, yep. just they always seem exactly how I thought they would. Uh, but you must be in touch. I mean, not only do you have young children, but you also are in touch with high school children Yeah. Um, on a regular basis. So like, what are we headed for? Like, cause this stuff evolves. I mean, I feel like that we've sort of settled into Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Maybe, uh, what's the other one? Um, Snapchat. Yep. Snapchat. Those are the four. Mm -hmm. Like, but it's always evolving. If not the platforms, you know, themselves, like changing out, like what happens within them, Mm -hmm. how they're used seems to evolve. Like, do you have a feeling for like how the the kids are doing it these days and like what it might mean? I mean, I think, well, I don't know. I think there's always waves that come and go. Um, I, I have one story that I've told before, but I, 
often do this assignment where I'll have the kids, if I'm teaching transcendentalism, I'll have the kids spend 24 hours without their phones, right? And it's like, you have to go be present in nature, do a Thoreau thing, do an Emerson thing. I know Thoreau's mom did his laundry or whatever, but let's pretend that didn't happen. Whatever. Um, That doesn't bother me. I want to stop. I'm a huge, like huge transcendental. Like that's my, I love that stuff. Yeah. Like I don't think American literature has hit higher heights. Um, I know it has its problems. I know it's not perfect, but like they were going for it. They really were. And like, I, uh, I've read a lot about Ralph and I've read a lot about Henry. Like I love Henry David Thoreau. Yeah. Like people give him shit. Cause he like, what, he wasn't far enough out into the woods. And he like, he never said he was, you know, he never said I was gonna, he's like, I'm just going to go do this. Like it was like performance art. Right. And so what he walked like a mile back into town and did some laundry. That doesn't like, that doesn't like, uh, invalidate the project invalidate the project yeah yeah i think you can i think you can really like transcendentalism and love thoreau and also recognize he wasn't doing like you know he wasn't actually living in an isolated manner in the woods with no contact with humanity but he didn't try to be so he also he wasn't on his phone and he wasn't like i mean god like doing what he did compared to how we live today would be enormously challenging for just about anybody. Yeah. You know, it's not like he was living in splendor. No. Yeah. You know, I, I, know. I, I, uh, I don't know. I just think like, especially you, you talk about climate and our relationship to our natural environment. And you think about what he was saying, what, what is it now? Almost 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, the guy was way ahead of his time. He really was. Like, and an, he was a beautiful writer. Yeah. An incredible yeah. naturalist and like, you know, sort of, self-taught observer of nature and just like a very careful observer. Have you seen a movie called Upstream Color? No. You'd probably love it. It's super weird, super indie. Um, Oh, I'm trying to remember. It's the same guy who did the movie Primer. His name is Shane. Ah. I'm going to kick myself. I'm going to remember who he is as soon as well, I get off this We got podcast. the title. We got okay, enough. Upstream Color. Yeah. Um, beautiful movie. And it's there's, there's a lot of Walden is used in it very heavily. It's a lot about the natural, like the relationship between the natural world and people and also paranoia. So it's right up my alley. Oh, um, wow. It's beautiful. What's the bit? I mean, what's the, what's the gist of it? Like the... Like if you're paranoid, you're more likely to find a uh, safe harbor in nature or does nature oh. make you paranoid? I, I hesitate to even tell you the gist of it because it's so weird. Here's how weird it is, is uh, my husband and I were watching it in a movie theater and the guy next to my husband was like, oh no, my husband was like, is this the movie? And the guy next to my husband said, no, 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 I think this is a commercial for, for recycling. And then like five minutes later, the guy leaned over and was like, no, no, this is the movie. <laughs> it's like a super bizarre visual trip. Um, literary, artistic, you know, I don't even know the right word. It's a beautiful, beautiful artistic experience to have. Can a kid watch it? I think there are some disturbing parts. I would hesitate from like how disturbing I'm pretty lenient, but I mean, I don't want to like, I don't know. I feel like there's, there's a couple scenes that I remember being a little bit visually disturbing. Um, I think there is a gun towards the end too Mm. there's somebody who gets shot but um it's not i mean i don't know it's beautiful okay anyway 
watch upstream color. So, and you're teaching your kids, you like, and your students go out into the woods for 24 well, hours. So I tell them, you know, spend 24 hours without your phone, log it, write about it, try to be present in the moment. And then, you know, do a little reflection on it. We also do a thing where we go up, we hike a little bit up behind our school. Cause our school is, it backs up to the woods, which is amazing, but also our insurance has gone up horribly in the last year or so because of wildfires. Uh-huh. Um, but in any case, We'll go up there. We'll sit for a while. Some of the kids will hate it. Um, some of the kids will love it. But what I found in the last time I did it, I had a couple kids who wrote me the reflection and said they didn't actually spend the 24 hours without their phone because they didn't want to lose their snap streaks. And I was like, what is a snap streak? Like, what are you, what are you talking about? We're doomed. And it's what it is, is you have these streaks with your friends where it says like how many days in a row that you've each snapped each other. And it's almost for them a measure of how good their friendship is Uh so that if they lose the snap streak, it's almost like something has gone wrong with the friendship. And I was trying to talk a couple students through this. Like you realize that the number on your phone has nothing to do with the connection you have with that person. Right. But they couldn't get there. Does every single one of your students have a smartphone? Yes. Damn. There's not a parent out there. Who's like, no, at my school. No. I'm, I think I might be the dick dad. I know, gonna, right? I want to be. I want to be too. But I want to get rid of my own phone. I go. I haven't gotten a new phone in forever, and my phone has no battery life left. And I'm I'm ready to do the touch pad whatever thing. What does that mean? I don't know. You know those phones that don't have any the flip phone. Yeah, like a flip phone. I think there's like a uh, what's it called, like a light phone or something like that that just makes phone calls and maybe text messages. Yes. But then what about, see, the thing is I can't call an Uber. I know. And then you have to get a camera and I can't get a GPS mm-hmm. and I don't have a camera. You don't have navigation. They and then me. how do you get your work email when you're you right. know, traveling? Right. Are you going to bring your laptop with you everywhere? What if you don't have Wi-Fi? I know. I was just They've thinking us. I might get us an iPhone 11 <laughs> and I'm like, I am I going to do this? I'm like, I, I don't, I want to resist, but yet it's been like five generations now and I haven't gotten a new one and my phone's battery just dies in like three That's hours. where I'm at. Yeah. It's terrible. Stressful. In a perfect world, though, I wouldn't have it. I don't yeah. want to have it. I, I don't want to need it. I hate being tethered to it. I hate my behavior with it. And yet, I know there are many conveniences in it. Like, the object itself is not evil. You know, it's just a tool. Right. And yet, it's playing on your psychology. Like, these companies are not... The people who run these companies aren't fools. Like, your snap streak. Yeah. They are working on the psychology of kids. They know that that shit it makes it sticky. Yeah. And I want to be clear, like, I don't think teenagers are idiots. Like I love a lot of the students I teach. I think they're brilliant. They're thoughtful. I actually sometimes come away feeling very hopeful after I teach where it's like, yeah, these kids are awesome. They're thinking about stuff. They're engaging, they're activists, they're reading, they're working. Um, and yet, you know, we've, we've created this culture where they can't break away from these stupid electronic apps. <laughs> right. Yeah. And like they can be advertised to, it's like you just, you're carrying a TV around in your pocket yeah. with internet, you know, it's like the whole thing right there. Yep. And, uh, you know, you're sort of handcuffed to it. I do feel like the generation <laughs> of parents, like I feel like my generation of parents, the people who have young kids now, you know, you have young kids now, I feel like we are more conscious about how our kids are using technology than the parents who have 
teenagers right now were because just because they didn't know, right? They weren't as aware of what was happening or how fast it was changing and they couldn't quite get a handle on it. And so those kids just lost out. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do have some hope that the kids who are growing up right now have parents who are a little more aware of what that does to people. I mean, I'm going to sound like an old person when I say this, but I definitely have noticed as a Gen Xer, like when I, you know, talk with friends of mine who are young and in their twenties, how, you know, they came of age in the internet. That's, there was never an analog world for them. There was an analog world for me as a child. Yeah. And there is a fluency around, um, curation of self and self-presentation online on social media that hues like for, for my, uh, from my perspective, like disturbingly closely to like, like Madison Avenue advertising culture, mm -hmm. there's like a similar, there's like a, a weird crossover and it's like a, a hyperfluency. It like, it, it's like second nature, like talking in English is second nature to somebody who's raised in an English speaking family. You just sort of pick it up. Yeah. That's what it feels like to me. But for me, um, like I'm able to function on the internet and to some degree on social media or whatever, I'm only on Twitter, but it's like, to me, it's, it's more of a stretch. I'm not as hyperfluent and I feel that divide. And then I also feel like there's a value system generationally where it's like, yeah, how many followers do you have? How many likes, how is it playing online that I didn't grow up with? And it sort of freaks me out. I know shit changes and generations are different and you just have to sort of roll with the punches. But I got to say, I do worry sometimes, like, especially about my own kids, like that doesn't seem healthy. Yeah. Right. That no. doesn't seem wise. Like, I don't know. You know, I, I, I go back and forth. I don't want to be the old person who just doesn't get it. But I also think sometimes like you can't make progress without change, mm -hmm. but not all change is progress. We need yeah. to, we need to know how to like, uh, parse the two. And I guess that's part of the challenge for me. Yeah, I would agree. You know? And like, and then I'm also not like a super hardcore, as much as I like to pretend that I would be, my daughter's on her iPad. She's up in her room. She's like using apps I've never heard of. She's nine. Right. She's talking with her friends. I don't know what she's doing. I don't like being a super micromanagey dad. Um, I'll let her watch like a movie that's like, I'm not a rated R probably yet, but like PG 13, like I don't, I, you know, I don't know. I'm pretty lenient. I let her swear as long as she doesn't cuss at people and use derogatory names. Right. Um, I want to treat her like a person or maybe I'm trying to correct something from my own childhood. <laughs> I couldn't even say, but without my mom being like, what you know? Like, um, so I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to figure out how to like live in the world and then like work against it and like make the right choices. And you know, that's what you're, that's what you're writing about. Yeah, I'm trying. <laughs> I mean, I'm writing through it because I don't know how to do it either. Right. right. So it's like, how do we, how do we buy the suburban house and, you know, get the Nutribullet and, you know, have the membership to the gym, but then also say like, Hey, the way the world works is not the way we want the world to work. Those things all sound good to me though. Yeah, they are good. They are good. Cause like I was, someone was tweeting in my timeline the other day and she was like, you know, there's a lot of privilege inherent in self care. And I was like, yeah, she's right. Mm -hmm. Like if you have uh, access to a neutral bullet and a gym membership and you have time to go to a yoga class or whatever it is like you, and you can afford it because the yoga is like suddenly like expensive. Right. 
um, then yeah, you are privileged. Um, and then I started thinking like, cause I, I'm like, I always feel like I'm not reading enough or I don't have time. Cause I'm, I mean, books just yeah. come at me and I've got people no, coming impossible. over and I'm like, I, the only time that I currently have to read is before bed. And I pick up a book and I'm three pages in and I'm asleep because mm-hmm. I'm so fucking tired. Yeah. And I'm like, reading is a privilege. Cause I'm like, there are also people in my timeline who are like, I read 90 books this year. And I'm like, wow. Yeah. Like there's the, like the, the sort of like, what's the word? Um, the petty part of me is like, oh, nice life you have. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, wow. You must be living <laughs> high on the hog if you have time to read 90 fucking books in a year. Like, yeah. what am I doing wrong? I know. Like I'm running around with like my head spinning just to get through every day. And, uh, or maybe I'm not prioritizing it enough because mm-hmm. I do get up in the morning and like meditate and exercise every day. Cause like, I need that to like have the energy and like my wits about me to get the other responsibilities of my life done. Yeah. That, that feels like my time and like my oxygen. Yeah. Um, maybe for them it's, they spend those first two hours reading or something. Yeah. Well, you have to do what you have to do to get by. I mean, um, there's, like you said, there's only so much time and I feel that all the time, um, that there's, you know, what are you supposed to, how are you supposed to prioritize those few hours you maybe have? You know, I wake up usually at five, five fifteen, buys me enough time that there's like an hour and a half maybe before my kids are up, maybe just an hour depends on the day, but what am I going to spend that hour doing? Do you spend it writing? Do you spend it reading? Do you spend it meditating or exercising? What do you do? do? You just, I mean, it varies. I try to write in the mornings when I can. Um, but you also can't only write right? If you're only writing, then you're also coming from a completely insular place. Like you have to absorb other things that are out there. And I, I, I find myself really uninspired when I'm in a phase of only writing and not reading or looking at art or for me, watching films also is a big, I'm a pretty visual person. Um, so like a lot of times I'll write a poem, watching a movie with the sound off and just sort of watching the images and thinking about the images. Um, so yeah, if you're not, if you're not also consuming something, it's hard to, but then, you know, you have to balance everything. And sometimes there's a morning where you're like, I need to sleep or else I'm going to get sick. Um, or I'm going to crash later today and I'm not going to be able to take my kid to baseball practice cause I'm going to be exhausted. And then what kind of a mother am I? Yeah. I mean, and so you let yourself sleep or like typically? Sometimes. Uh, I mean, it depends. I've, I went through a, a really bad stint like uh, I guess like a year and a half ago where I was having these episodes every month where I was just nauseous and vomiting um and had migraines and I felt horrible and I went to like every specialist right because I was convinced like I have cancer I'm dying there's something wrong with my internal organs and we did all these tests and like nothing came up um, and then there was this idea that maybe it's cyclical vomiting syndrome, which I had never heard of. And then you look it up and you're like, well, this is terrible. It's just, you throw up every month. Right. And it's horrible. I didn't even know it existed. It's terrible and terrifying. And I went to a nutritionist who said, you know, I've been seeing a lot of this from high achieving women in their thirties. She was like, I, I've seen this in more people than just you. And I think there's something going on here that we don't quite understand with stress, perfectionism, um, lack of sleep, um, the way people, the way bodies are responding to these environments we're putting them in because I was just pushing myself nonstop. 
Um, and if there was any place to cut, it was going to be cutting the self-care, right? Um, because who needs that? Um, and so, yeah, it was really scary. Uh, and, and you, you know, I also had the male doctors that were, Oh, honey, you just need to eat some more cookies. (laughs) No, I don't. Is that what they said? Oh yeah. I had a, I had a male, older male doctor who looked me in the eye and told me my problem was I wasn't making cookies with my kids and eating them together as a family enough. And like, it was so condescending. It was like, eat a sandwich, honey. You know, like I think he even said sweetie to me and it was just terrible. Cause it was like, don't you know, I'm trying my hardest <laughs> right. to do the things I need to do, uh, to not be this way. The last thing I want to do is, is feel this way. Um, but I guess this is a long way of saying it stopped eventually after like seven months after I just had repeatedly instituted more boundaries for myself, um, that feel selfish, right? It feels selfish to say, you know what? I need an hour to go for a walk. Right. Uh, and why should that feel selfish? It does, especially when you're juggling work and family and other demands. Um, it's really tough. You got to oxygenate yourself. Yeah. I say this all the time, but it's like the, the metaphor is like, you know, the airplane with the oxygen mask. Yeah. You got to give yourself oxygen first. It seems counterintuitive. You got your kids next to you, but you got to do it. Otherwise you're going to pass out and then you're no good to them. It's true. You know? So it's like the problem is like when to find that hour. Yeah. And so like, I have to do it first thing. Otherwise it's just not happening. Right. Um, and it can be hard, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, even that's like, you know, undoable, It is. you know, for some reason or other. And so, um, I think that people get stressed and I think they fall out of balance. I see it with friends. I see it with family members and like, has it always been this way? Is it getting worse? Why does it feel like it's getting worse? It does. It does feel like it's getting worse. And I, I don't know why exactly. I think there is, I mean, maybe this is, maybe this is too like wooey or something, but I think there is something about separation from the natural world that's very real. Um, one of the things that I've started doing that's really helped me is I've gotten super into hiking. Um, and my, my school is a really outdoorsy school. We go on these big senior trips every year to Yosemite and the Grand Canyon. Um, we hike half dome with the kids and I was terrified of doing that when I started working there. Cause I was not, uh, a hiker. <laughs> Hiking's the best. It's amazing. I love it. I've always done it. It's so, amazing. And yeah. it's such a cleansing it's such a cleansing feeling to just be there, especially if you're hiking someplace without cell service. So you're like, whatever, you can't get in touch with me even if you tried. Right. And you're just, I don't know, there's like a, an in syncness with the world that I feel. And I've just gotten to, my oldest son is six and we're just at the point where he can go on some longer hikes with me. And it's awesome because now I don't even feel guilty about childcare. No. I'm like, I'll take the six-year-old. Yeah. He went on a five-mile hike the other day and did incredibly, like, you know, the whole thing. There was some elevation. He was awesome. What are some good, like, difficult hikes out there? Are there trails that you know, like, that pretty good climbs? Well, out in Claremont where I live, there's Mount Baldy. Um, oh, right. So there's a ton of hikes you can do on Mount Baldy. Um, I'm really into this trail called Ice House Canyon right now on, on Baldy, which is great. It's like an eight-mile round-trip trail. And it's just strenuous enough that you're like, oh, I felt that, you know, right. um, it's at elevation. It's, it's difficult. It's steep. You've got switchbacks, but it's not, it's not going to kill you. So you can do it. 
in the morning and be done. I mean, it'll take you like two and a half, three hours, depending on how fast you hike. Yeah, that's and good. then you're, and then you're like, you know, I'm done three, four hours. Maybe actually I'm thinking about it now, but then, you, then you can recover. Like it's not going to kill you completely. Right. Um, last time I did half dome with our school that, that destroyed me the next day. <laughs> yeah. I was not prepared for that hike. I'm going to train a lot more this year. Did you see the, the movie about the guy who free climbed half dome? Yes. Buddy yeah. of mine produced that. He won an oh Oscar. My God. Uh, the free solo. Yeah. 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 It's insane. That guy though, Alex Honnold, he's like got a very specific brain. The, the, the takeaway for the movie for me was the relationship between he and his girlfriend. Yes. Like, that's what I fixated on even more. I than, know. Like, like, like the climb is insane. And like, it made my hands sweat. And like, I started to get anxious just watching it. Like I had to turn away. Like this, yeah. is, this is, but the whole thing is like, he's a compelling character and I'm just thinking like, what is going on in that relationship? And like, I feel worried that one day I'm going to like turn on the news and be like, Alex Honnold died. Like, I know. So you sort of feel like he's got some kind of weird, like obsessive thing or death wish or, you know, I don't know. I don't get, I don't get that. Like, no. like, you know, I'm, I'm super impressed, but I'm also like, I, you didn't need to do that to impress me. Yeah. Like I'm already impressed. Like you can climb anything like with ropes. <laughs> I just wrote this poem about, um, hiking bros because I feel like there's a particular kind of like hiking bro. I was, so I was teaching Frankenstein and I don't know if you've ever read Frankenstein, the novel, uh -uh. but okay. So Frankenstein, like actual Frankenstein in the book, he's a big hiker. Really? Yeah. He hikes <laughs> a ton in the Swiss Alps and there's all these very detailed scenes of him hiking in the Alps and feeling like, oh, I'm outside on the cliff and it's storming. Uh, yeah. And he even has like these scenes where he's like, I don't need a guide. I'm just going to go and I'm going to summit it right now. And it, even though there's lightning, I don't care. And that's sort of like, of course, the idea of the sublime and, you know, it's awe and fear. Um, but I also, it was just making me think, because he's such an asshole in the book. And it was making me think about, you know, these guys usually like a white man hiking just to like have the hit of achievement right where it doesn't actually matter that you're out there and you're in sync with nature it's more like yeah man i i summited this peak and it was like totally <laughs> transcendental uh, like then i went and got brunch with my with my girlfriend i don't know it's just so gross it's like this gross achievement yeah. culture no i know that so well from uh my time living in colorado like where it's like that it's like that on steroids it's yeah like, it's like the skiing snowboarding hiking well, bro it all comes from dr frankenstein is that what it the was the original hiking bro yeah yeah it's a weird like <laughs> there's a weird like personality type that like you know I, i've summited every 14er Yes. In Colorado. Exactly. And then, then it just goes from there. And it's then like I brought a dead man to life. Yeah. yeah. Well, I have a buddy who, I mean, it's sort of interesting. Like he was involved in a terrible accident in college and like a girl lost her life. And then he turned into, he turned to rock climbing hmm. and became like very intense. Right. And so he's not the test case for like climbing bro, because I think like psychologically it makes sense that he would turn to something yeah. like that to try to like, you know forget about his worries because it's such a present moment, uh, activity. Like you mm -hmm. can't be sitting there being neurotic when you're clinging to half dome, you know, yes. even with ropes, you know? Yeah. And so, uh, but he got super, super into it. He was even on like the cover of climbing magazine. He was good. And, uh, he went all over the world. Like he would go, you know, 
be like be bivouacking on the side of a cliff and spend the night and eat like beans out of a can and you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, yeah. He was intense. But then um, he was in Patagonia, I believe it was Patagonia, doing some like really remote climb, you know, famous in climbing world and dangerous, you know, difficult. Mm -hmm. And he was on the the wall and there was a rock slide. Oh my and God. he's like watching these giant boulders like fall like a few feet from him and wound up killing like a hit a climber. He had to repel to try to oh save the guy. God. They're out in the middle of the woods, you know, yeah. out in the middle of nature in Patagonia, like nowhere near any kind of, uh, you know, medical um, help or whatever. And some guy died. And I think he came back from that trip and was like, okay, I got to take it down a notch. Like, yeah, uh, he's still a climber, but like the, that level of intensity dropped significantly. Yeah. Um, because... That's intense. Yeah. And you get to, uh, I mean, I just talked to a guy for the show who, uh, was, you know, spent a lot of time in the Himalayas and hiked up to like 18,000 feet on, uh, Everest and, uh, that whole culture, you know, like it, it's, it's strange, the personality type, you know, as like the, like the, there's like different levels, right? It's mm -hmm. like the guy who loves to like just summon a peak and like wear all the gear and go hike Baldy. And then it's the guy who has to do the 14ers. Right. And then it's the guy who has to do like Annapurna and it had the guy who has to go to Mount McKinley. And, right. You know what I'm saying? Right. It just goes on and on and on. And then eventually you get to that super high level and like people start dying. Yeah. And it's like, what are we doing? Yeah. We're supposed to be enjoying ourselves. Yeah. Know? <laughs> I know. Uh, so you, uh, where did you go to college? Or I went to you? Yale. Oh, you did? Yeah. Smarty. I know. I kind of hate saying it because it's gross. <laughs> well, I mean, that would be good for you. And uh, were you an uh, English person then? or? Yeah, I majored in English lit and I thought I was going to be a professor um, for a while. And then I got into the CIA track and then I, then I ditched all of it. <laughs> did they recruit there? I mean... I applied for the internship, but I think the fact that I was at Yale, I was also taking Arabic, not because I wanted to be an intelligence, but because I thought the language was really beautiful. Um, it's a gorgeous language. And, you know, if you're talking about poetry, like Arabic poetry is incredibly beautiful and detailed. Um, I translated some of it and it's just the way the words are structured, like they have these root every word has a root word, right? So no matter what word you're saying, there's some like ghost of another word inside of it, basically. Oh, wow. So it's just a beautifully layered language. Can you speak it? No. Oh. I mean, I took Arabic for four years and I spent a summer in Morocco, but uh, I was learning modern standard Arabic, which is kind of like the equivalent would be like Shakespearean English. Right? Isn't it? Isn't it uh, I thought it was like an easier language to learn. It's pretty difficult. It is. Okay. Yeah. And every, <laughs> every Arabic speaking country has their own dialect. So depending on where you're going in the Middle East, you're going to run into a different spoken language. And the spoken language is different from the written language. And you can speak the written language, but you sound stupid. Got it. So like if I would go into a store in Morocco and ask for bread, it would be like, dost thou harvest the bread, right? Like people would laugh because I was speaking like a very antiquated. <laughs> and they'd be like, wow, yeah. this lady's uh, eccentric. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> so, okay, so you go to Yale, you're dabbling in CIA yeah. uh, career paths and you're majoring in English. Mm -hmm. You're writing poetry. Yes, but putting it in a drawer and pretending like it wasn't important. Yeah. Did you like Yale? You know, I had a, I had a good experience there. Um, I did. I had a good experience there, but I also was, 
I think, pretty isolated in the way I interacted with the community. Like, I was a super nerd. I loved my classes. Um, I had some great professors that I learned a lot from. I did have a group of friends that I really loved, but... Um, did you have fun? I had fun. Yeah. I had a good time. I thought high, I thought college was easier than high school. I think I really worked hard in high school. And then, you know, you get to college, you're just writing papers and it's fun. I mean, I love, I, I love writing papers. So okay, <laughs> I love writing an essay. Yeah. Give me essays. I'll write them all day. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And did, uh, did you, but it doesn't sound like you went wild in college. Like, no, okay. I wasn't a huge partier. I mean, I was in an acapella group, which is kind of Yale's version of frats and sororities, but, um, yeah. I mean, I'm, I've never been like an excessive person. Maybe that's the ballet dancer coming back. Yeah. yeah. Just keep it rigid. <laughs> keep it tight. Right. Don't, don't lose it. And then you, uh, your dad is a church organist. So you mm. grew up like religious or Episcopalian. Yeah. Oh, that's, but I feel like Episcopalian is sort of like, yeah, I always call it Catholic light. It is. It's like sane Catholicism. Yeah. Well, like the church of England was created so somebody could get divorced. Right. So the, cause the King was like, I want to get divorced. Let me create a church that'll let me do that. Great. Done. Is that really the truth? Yeah. The Anglican church was created. I forget who it was. I, I, if I say it, I'll get the name wrong, but it was, I believe it was a King okay. who wanted to get divorced. There you go. I could be wrong. That's what it yeah. takes. Yep. We need to create some new churches I think, or maybe something. <laughs> uh, I, uh, yeah, I, my daughter went to an Episcopalian school when she was uh, little and I got a taste of it there. Like they would have like chapel yeah, and like the parents were supposed to show up. So I would sit there, but I was charmed by it just because mm-hmm. they were like super welcoming. There's like women priests, gay yeah. priests, like it's gay marriage is fine. Like sort of like, I was like, oh, and then they were very, it was like very broad because the families there were not all Episcopalian. We're not Episcopalian. Right. So they had families that are like, you know, from all different walks of life and they sort of accommodated that. I think they maybe tailored the, the, um, sermons and stuff, you know, and stuff to be broad. Yeah. But it was like nothing. I, I think nothing bothered me. I was like, oh, this is nice. Like she's not being, yeah, you know, fed information that uh, I would deem like questionable or potentially damaging, which happened to me. I feel like yeah. at least to a degree. <laughs> right. Um, do you still, do you still do it? Are you? No, no. You dropped and- it. I dropped it and my, uh, my husband is practicing Buddhist. So, um, we have a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of Buddhist philosophy now in our home and I love it. I haven't, I haven't taken the leap to like totally immerse myself in Buddhism. But what, but what does it mean? He's a practicing Buddhist. Like he does, like he goes on sessions or whatever. Right there at Mount Baldy. Yeah. But he's gone to, I think he goes to San Francisco Zen center. Uh-huh. Um, He's like, we are little, we have a little shed in the backyard, um, and he's made it into sort of a little Zendo. Um, it's beautiful, like little meditation cushions. It's white. There's like a little altar. Um, so I, I think I say practicing Buddhist cause I feel like he doesn't just subscribe to the philosophy. Like he really does it. Does it? Does he go to temple on a, on a regular basis? He doesn't do that. Um, and I feel like that's partly like family demands, work demands. It's hard to find the time, but he does try to meditate as often as he can. And that's been really I really like having that philosophy, um, around, but we try to teach our kids, like, look, there's a lot of different religions. We've given our older son the whole rundown of like, here's who Jesus was. Here's who Muhammad was. Here's who the Buddha was. You know, you can kind of choose what you want to think about, but all of them have value and yeah, you know, everyone believes a different thing. That's kind of how I am. It's yeah. like, I like, I think I just, I talked about this recently my, my daughter was like, what's baptism? Cause like my sisters are still Catholic. My parents, right. And I was like, sort of, I mean, I can be sort of flipped, but I was like, oh, they dunk you in water and then you're like initiated or something like very 
quick. And she's like, well, when, you know, can I get baptized? And I was like, yeah, if you want to, when you're older. Right. I'm like, you can, you know, I'm, I'm just going to be like, it's on you. You got to yeah. make these decisions. If you choose it, go for it. Yeah. Yeah. But you don't have to do anything I say. Right. <laughs> I'm a hands-off dad. Maybe I'm not doing it right. I don't know. But uh, like I meditate a lot. I've talked about that a bunch too. Um, I would love to do like session or like go do something more intensive, but I can't get away. It's really hard. Like we have only like such limited vacation time. It's like if I'm like, if I go to my wife and I'm like, by the way, honey, I know I'm going to be on a silent retreat for the next 10 days. And like, you won't be able to reach me and I'm going to be very chill yeah on a mountainside but She's here's gonna... the thing though is it's like it's not chill right like i think it's actually a very strenuous emotional experience it, um i know that it would be maybe i'm wrong i could be wrong but like i've meditated i can meditate a lot yeah uh and i've done it for years and like i feel like i could hang like i don't think it would <laughs> like it's not like i would just be going there cold like i sure. sort of i know that there's going to be a lot of like mental movies that are not pleasant that's just the right, nature right, right, right. of it um, maybe it would be sort of exhausting to do it that intensively, but like 10 days of silence yeah, doesn't scare me at all. Yeah. That sounds delightful to me. I know. I'm, I'm down with being quiet. I don't want to talk to anybody when I'm there except for maybe the, whatever the Zen teacher or whatever. Right. Um, then you can sort of like, you know, help me. <laughs> right. Um, but <laughs> no, just, I, I think like, I think that experience would be super interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's like, uh, what keeps me coming back is that when you sit down quietly and just watch the batshit insanity of your mind, uh, it's never not interesting. It's true. You know? Um, but it's also, I think temperamentally, it's just like for me, for some reason helps me out, but I don't know, like I haven't built a Zendo yet. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you can do it. I know, it's right? not too hard. <laughs> Uh, well, it's great to meet you. No, it's great to meet you too. And uh, congrats on your uh, collection. And are you working on anything new, or like, is it? And is it poetry only for you? Do you have other things that you might want to write? I, I'm dabbling with a novel that I've been researching, but um, I haven't taken the step of writing anything on a page yet. So I don't want to say that I'm definitely doing it or not doing it. I think poetry is comes naturally to me, and I have been writing more poems that maybe will be a third collection, or maybe not, but. Um, yeah, poetry just clicks for me. Cool. Well, it's great to meet you. Congratulations. Thank you so much. All right, guys, there you go. That's Elizabeth Cantwell. She's a poet. Her collection is called All the Emergency Type Structures. It's available from Inlandia Institute. Go get your copy. All the Emergency Type Structures. You can find Elizabeth online at ecantwell.com. You can follow her on Twitter at ECCantwell. Once again, the book is All the Emergency Type Structures. Thanks to Tiger in My Tank for the uh, interstitial music up at the top. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Share your feelings. If you want to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Tip your server. Don't forget about the Other People app. It's free. This program has its own official app. It's free. The Other People with Brad Listy app. Go search for it wherever you get your apps. Most likely you'll find it. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but I'm a little under the weather. I have a kid cold. My children gave me a cold. I blame them. 
just feel sort of weary. I'm okay. Sort of annoyed. I want to go hike that canyon that I talked about with Elizabeth. What is it, Ice House Canyon? I want to do that. So next up on the program is uh, Zulema Renee Summerfield. She will be my guest in the next episode. Stay tuned for that. Had a great conversation with her. Hope you guys are doing well out there, wherever you are. All right, I think I've said my piece. I don't know what else I have to say. The world is crazy right now. Read some poetry. Read something besides Twitter. I'm talking to myself here. It's like drinking from a fire hose. <laughs>